November 11th, 2013. It's the creative process. All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. Welcome back to the creative process. Um, I'm Jared Ponchot. I'm the creative director at Lullabot. And I'm Jeff Robbins. I'm the CEO at Lullabot. Yeah, and welcome back. Um, it's the, fun to the be periodic. It's fun Lullabot. to be back on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a it's creative. We do it every now and then uh, when we can find time. We've been we've been busy recently. Yeah, turns out we run a business and build lots of big websites. So it, there are times when either that or scheduling creatives to be on this can be very challenging for us. Yes, yes. Um, but speaking of which, recently we did a big project. Yes, related to this podcast, uh, we launched msnbc.com uh, a few weeks ago. It's exciting yeah. project. All the responsive design magic by Jared Ponchot and the rest of the Lullabot front-end team and uh, Drupal running happily on the back end. It's yeah, good, lots, good. Of, lots of amazing people doing lots of different things made that project happen. It was cool to be a part of it and see it and, and also see it see it launched so it's exciting when stuff like that happens yeah yeah we're feeling really proud we we had to <laughs> we had to put off usually we have a so lullabot's a distributed company we have people spread out all over um and uh and so we have an annual company retreat and we fly everyone to one location and get to hang out in person which is not something we often get to do at least as, as an entire team um mm-hmm. and uh and so we, we'd been doing it over the summer um, and but with them SNBC hot and heavy, uh, we, we ended up putting it off. So we're, we'll be going away next week. Actually, probably when this podcast posts, we will be sitting on the beach in, yeah. in Cancun, Mexico, or uh, near can, it, Puerto Adventurous. That's where we. Yes. Yeah. Puerto Aventuras. Aventuras. Sorry. Forty-three people from Lullabot all coming down to Mexico. It's very exciting. Uh, we'll we'll post pictures. Um, yeah, so you can all feel jealous. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're just we're we're feeling really good about uh about our year this year and about uh, MSNBC and and this project in particular. Um, yeah, and speaking of which, so today we have the wonderful privilege of talking with Richard Wolf. Um, Richard is a journalist. He's an author. He's an on-air personality. Uh, and a featured political analyst, not just on MSNBC, but you may have also seen him on other networks as well. I, I know he's been on the Today Show. He's been on a bunch of different things. So you may recognize him. Uh, at one point in his life, he was the senior White House correspondent for News- Newsweek magazine. He's written three different books, I believe, about the Obama administration. Uh, the most recent one, The Message, just came out this year in 2013 uh he somehow found the time to also write two books on spanish cooking um so hopefully we'll get him to share a paella recipe with us um and aside from all that he's uh the vp and executive editor of msnbc.com where his vision and leadership has helped create this entirely new experience that we're talking about for msnbc.com which just launched so richard thanks for joining us Thank you, and um, thank you for all the uh, work in making MSNBC.com actually happen. So it's fr- it's fine to have vision, but it's completely useless unless people can actually make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. Like I was pre- preparing to, how do I introduce Richard Wolf? And I started lo- like writing down this list. When do you find time to sleep? 
I don't. Actually, I've given up on sleep altogether. I used to be a really great sleeper, but, um, you know, I... Um, then, then I got into book writing and I would find that my best book writing would happen late at night and early into the morning when everyone else was asleep. And then somehow that ended up with me not really sleeping. So I, it's not been a great cycle for the whole sleep pattern. I do try and have siestas when I can, but sadly at work that's not possible. Yeah, the, with the, the the whole sort of cycle of live television, I would imagine that's a challenge. Yeah, they don't have any nap rooms, I'm afraid, at 30 Rock. Yeah. So in in 2012, I guess, you became the VP and executive editor of msnbc.com. Is that is that right? Uh 2012, that's correct. Yeah. And you began working at that point, I, I guess, to, to create this sort of whole new msnbc.com experience. Can, can you tell us just a little bit about sort of how that happened? Yeah. You know, it actually began before then, uh, a little more than a year before then, in fact, um, when I was first approached by MSNBC to um, create this website. And uh, it was just like a once-in-a-career opportunity, and and I thought I actually couldn't believe it was really there. You, I never really thought that MSNBC didn't have a website, but then you think about it. Well, yeah, there was this weird thing that MSNBC had started out being a sort of version of CNN, and and then it had changed, and I and I was fully aware of that because I was part of that change and how on TV MSNBC had found its voice, but. There was this website that still reflected the old CNN-like vision of MSNBC, and that had never really been cleaned up. And I, I like most people, hadn't really thought about it. Um, and then when MSNBC said, you know, here's this thing, we'd love you to figure out what it should be, uh, I jumped at it. Um, you know, there's just a great amount of creative freedom at that point where there was some overarching mission. We want this to be, to have the voice and the spirit of MSNBC TV. Mm -hmm. We want to grow our audience. But that was pretty much it. Um, and actually having those two things are really important. They're not small things at all. But all of the challenge all of the challenge is, and actually all of the fun, the creativity is translating that overarching mission and that purpose into something real, mm -hmm. into actual design, something that will please people, something that has an editorial meaning and function, um, turning it, that into U UX, wireframes, visual designs, and obviously the actual product that you all have built. And that, that, that was... Um, a massive, massive undertaking and also honestly a thrilling creative experience because everything was a blank page. I mean, it's so rare that you would get uh, a, a big news brand essentially inventing a website from scratch in 2013. So it was really a two year, uh, actually slightly more, two and a half year project. The, the problem was because of various corporate things like you know there was a joint venture that had to be unwound um, we had a lot of time to do the sort of conceptual work and a really crunch time to do the actual design and build and mm -hmm. that as you well know was was itself a big big challenge but it, it did allow us it allowed me to think through to a great degree what are we trying to do here how are we going to try and do it what what are the 
components, the building blocks, how do we translate it into something real? So there was a lot of conceptual work that I could do, which was very useful, but probably too much time in, and it was unbalanced. There was nothing we could do about that. There were, there were again, these um, structural corporate reasons why that happened. Sure. Yeah, I've never I've never imagined large and this may be incorrect. I should I should qualify that I've never actually worked at a large media company, but I've never imagined large media organizations as being sort of particularly forward thinking and blank slate, you know, let's create something new kinds of environments. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the role sort of leadership played uh, in in that creative endeavor and sort of how just how that happened like is it just that that environment was there and so you were free to lead um i I was given a lot of freedom um that's not to say it was complete freedom so uh you know the really challenging thing is to to turn the blank page into something that people can review Uh, actually that's where all the creativity comes from right you 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 start out with something blank, you try and fill it out, you iterate it, and then and, and then at that point, uh, obviously this is a big generalization, but at that point, I'd had to take it to a really extensive group of stakeholders, and we had, a, a, frankly, a, a quite unwieldy group. This is where being part of a big company has its advantages, mm-hmm. but it also has its complications, and and seek input from really a large, large group of people of various interests. Um, that that took time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was it was great to have a purpose and say, okay, here's something that fulfills these main functions from scratch. Um, taking it around a building or around a big organization, gathering input, trying to find consensus on these tweaks and refinements was a lot of work. So I, I had a lot of freedom and I also had a lot of consensus building to do around the vision that I thought was the right one. Right. Yeah, one of one of the common threads that we've talked about on this podcast has been uh, the role that constraints play in the creative process. And I remember, I remember being there at 30 Rock with you and sort of you walking us through the, you know, while live TV is happening through the newsroom and in backstage. And, and you were talking about sort of this culture of live TV uh, and that, and that inherent constraint. And it's sort of fascinating to me to see how that permeated, how the, how this endeavor happened and sort of this, just this mindset of like, just make stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a constraint, and it's also, live TV is also a sort of uh, a risk-taking environment. So it, it is an adrenaline rush and a, and a very strong deadline culture. So we do have the attitude of, let's just put on the show, mm-hmm. um, and let's keep on improving it until we get it right in, in a live public context. And, and that... That is a real parallel with the digital space where, you know, the whole idea of sort of building airplanes in the sky is kind of true. You you do things, it's pretty much in public view, but you can prototype, you can, you know, you, you have a, a dev environment, but you never really know until it's out there, mm-hmm. iterating it. That, there is a parallel there with live TV. Having said that... Um, 
it's also a different skill set and a different mentality. Um, it's a different mentality on the journalism side where you're moving from a essentially a verbal, uh, an audio-visual product to a written product. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're obviously TV is very complicated technically in terms of what it takes to operate a studio, transmit pictures, you know, across a country, across the world. I mean, there are lots and lots of moving pieces to it, and that's why a control room is is, is so complicated. Mm-hmm. And while a digital build is extremely, is just as complicated, and certainly no simpler. Um, uh, my boss, the president of, M- of MSNBC, Phil Griffin, tells anyone who will listen to him now that he has no idea just how complicated a task and operation this was. Because for most of them, they're, they're just they're educated consumers of the internet, right? They're mm-hmm. they're on news sites all day, but they think, oh, I could just click from one site to another, so it's kind of easy, right? <laughs> um, you know, we we have we have that kind of conversation crop up, like just today, when someone will say, why does the video load slowly? And I say to people, without being facetious, that's a bit like, and it's obviously a very different situation, but it's a bit like saying. Why does healthcare.gov not work? (laughs) There are 20 or 200 or 500 answers to that question and components to it. But all you see as an end user is, well, video is a bit slow or a website doesn't work. And, And that is something that, again, there are parallels with the TV culture, but honestly, they have no idea. They have no idea why video would be slow and video is something they probably ought to know about but they're at one end of the video process and we're at another so constraints um, also parallels um, I, I actually think having a risk-taking culture was really really important and and that freed me up to do some things that uh, sane people would probably have thought twice about <laughs> I don't know if we're going to recover from uh, the association that you've just brought between MSNBC.com and uh, (laughs) (laughs) healthcare.gov. They're not related, folks. Unrelated. Not the same. I've had had lots of people say, oh, you should have built healthcare.gov. And I thought, no, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, procurement in the government is, is a difficult challenge. They had 55 agencies involved with it, and I and contractors. So I, as complicated as as was, I, I had considerably less people to worry about. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because a lot of the people that we've we've talked with on our podcast have been like musicians, authors, artists, and that kind of thing. And um, I'm fascinated with you know someone in your role that's actually sort of you're you're managing a creative process that actually did maybe it wasn't 55 agencies like healthcare.gov but this was a lot of teams working together simultaneously and i was one of the things i was most impressed with was sort of how vision was distributed across the teams and it felt like that was maintained actually throughout the course of the project pretty well um can you talk about some of the real challenges that like in learning things that maybe that you experienced uh in doing that um you know uh i I flashed up a quote which has really stuck with me right at the start of this process from uh the quotes from johnny ive at apple Mm -hmm. um which is that simplicity isn't simple uh, you know, it's actually very complicated and hard work to maintain simplicity in anything like this kind of project. 
That was certainly true. And that quote kind of stuck with me. Um, for a start, I, I, I'm lucky to be you know, working in a place where we do have a clear sense of mission and purpose. So the overall direction of this project has never changed. What, what was a real struggle and what I think was actually not a small achievement at all for the whole team was to maintain that simplicity and simplicity of purpose especially mm -hmm. through pretty much every single page and every single feature and function. Not always, but, but pretty much. Mm -hmm. And that was a daily, hourly battle. Often with ourselves, not because people, people aren't malicious, they don't, they're not trying to steer you off course, but everyone has a good reason for saying, we should do this my way, and, and often they're right. There are good reasons why we should do it in a certain way, but you've still got to maintain that sense of purpose. Why are we doing this at all? Um, what's our filter for making decisions? Because, um, Unlike other creative projects that I've worked on, this one had, and I'm sure this is true of all digital projects, this one had so many decision points at every single turn. Uh, so you could be creative, mm -hmm. you could say, this is the best looking thing, this is the most original thing, but often the decisions aren't filtered through that. that prism they are filtered through uh, why are we doing this um, is it is it the best solution for the mission is it the best solution because it performs better is it the best solution because it looks better is it the best solution because that's all we can do in the time we've got and sure. those decision points uh, just don't stop coming they didn't stop coming I mean it uh, that was something that I um, I didn't expect, and that's where simplicity breaks down. Simplicity of purpose breaks down because you get twelve decisions through the day. Uh, you know, twenty-four decisions on a page. I'm just plucking out numbers yeah. out of the air. But those decisions, each one of those, can complicate purpose because there are good reasons why you would dilute your purpose or simplicity and complicate things. So Johnny I's point is that simplicity isn't the absence of clutter. The absence of clutter is the symptom of having a purpose, and that's where simplicity comes from. And I and I do think that's true. I, there's also this aspect of like um, job security to complication, or or not even job security. Like I think that oftentimes people feel like uh, when they come back with the simple answer, it it. it, it feels less important to people, it feels less thought out, you know. Um, did you find that, that you needed to kind of keep this as a mantra through, throughout and kind of keep referring back, keep it written on a piece of paper um, as people tried to make these more complicated decisions to things? Um, yeah, I did have to keep it in mind. Yes, I did. And it's, it's an effort. It really is an effort. Um, still today, I will say to people, and they will come to me with the question of why are we doing this right? and often that is a parallel to book writing I have to tell you um, 
when people get writer's block, certainly when I get writer's block, I'm struggling with a section, I can't finish it, I, I feel like I don't have the words to take me where I need to go with a paragraph or a chapter, I'll often have to take a step back and say, what am I trying to say? And often I can't answer it and I realize, well, that's why I'm struggling with the words. I'm struggling with the words because I don't know what I'm actually trying to say. And it sounds really simple, but by the time you've got yourself into a knot, it doesn't feel simple at all. It actually feels very, very complicated. So it's not terribly profound to say this, but in order to be able to write or communicate, you know, you have to have thought in detail about what you're trying to say. Um, this digital project, and I'm sure others too, for me, it's a sort of similar idea, which is to say, um, when you're struggling with something, you don't know the right path. Often that's because you don't know what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And whether it's like, how do I organize my day? How do I organize this page? Should this button be this way or that way? Often the answer really lies in, why are we trying to do this in the first place? Where do we want to take the user? What, what? What, what's the end goal we want here? And sometimes the answer is, well, I don't know, and that's why I can't make a decision about this button or this page or what I should do next. So that thinking time, I think, is really, really important. And again, it may sound blindingly simple, but when you're, <laughs> when you're in this mess, it doesn't feel simple at all. How do you manage to to give yourself that sort of creative pause and, and thinking time? I'm, I'm just curious because you seem like a rather pro prolific person. I just imagine you jumping from thing to thing to thing uh, and, and have been impressed with sort of your ability to actually be decisive in some of those points when we had 30 decisions that all had to be made in a five-minute span. Yeah. Um, how do I find the time to do that? Um, I I use all my dead time. You know, it could be in the middle of the night when I should be sleeping, or <laughs> four o'clock when I've woken up because I can't sleep, or on a run, or on the subway. I will, or this weekend I was um, I was at my kids' really enthralling little league baseball game, and um, <laughs> you know while I was waiting for my son to actually do something in the game. I was over in my head some of these challenges. Um, in this case, it was sort of organizational. Why have we structured a team this way? W what is the best purpose of this team? And and thinking it through. Okay, what is that? What impact does that have? And I, I can do the same. Honestly, I I, I run, but I hate running, mm -hmm. and so. I will save up some of these challenges for those moments when I need to keep my brain busy because otherwise I think about stopping running. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can relate to that. That's when I'll think about, okay, if we do this to a drop-down menu, then what, does this, what impact does this have on the landing page? And try and think through and visualize, actually, what this means for someone using the site and clicking through it what I would want to see, what I would want them to do, what the options would be. And I, I will I will try and just imagine it and game it out in my head. 
you mentioned sort of some parallels to to writing books and some of the challenges. Can can you tell us a little bit about sort of what your process looks like? Because you've written a number of books and you've managed to do it sort of in the margins, I guess, a lot because you've come out with new ones while you were also working on this project. Yeah, that was one of the most stupid things I've ever done. I'm not, <laughs> the book is stupid, but really, I more than I could chew. That was that was painful. Um, uh, Sorry, I forgot the question. Why do you? Are you, you Can you just tell us a little bit about your process when when you take on a new book? Uh, wh- what's that look like? How how do you start? Where do your ideas come from? How do you end up turning that into something that becomes the book? And so again, I spend a lot of time at the early st- at the front end of a book, thinking through the concept and working it over and mapping it out and blocking it out. Often working with my agent or a book editor or both and saying. I'm really trying to develop it and think it through. Book projects are obviously long projects. You have this giant lead time, and you don't know what the marketplace is going to be when you launch. So you're really trying to have to think through how is this different? How can I um, how can I figure it out? Uh, you know, it, it's um, it's uh, it, it's a complicated. It's a, an ambitious thing. You have to you have to really break it down uh, as we would in a digital project. Mm-hmm. But you have to break it down chapter by chapter, and then within each chapter. One of my first um, news editors in a really small town newspaper operation uh, was a guy who was he kind of had a nervous breakdown. He'd he'd had a he'd been a, a newspaper editor at I don't know twenty nine. He was the youngest ever newspaper editor anywhere in this news group. And then by thirty three or thirty five he was burnt out and had, had triple heart bypass. And so he ended up teaching idiots like me how to be journalists. And and one of the ridiculous things he he was kinda of half mad. And one of the things he told us at the time was how to overcome this daunting sense of I can't do this. I've got such a mm-hmm. giant project ahead of me. My news editor, my boss, my editor has asked me to do this project. How do I go about it? And and it's a really, again, a really stupid thing he used to say, but it has stuck with me. He he would say, "How do you eat an elephant?" And we go, "I, I don't know. How do you eat an elephant? I mean, uh, what are you supposed to do?" He said, "With a knife and fork." <laughs> and and got a. I'm sure there are animal rights people who'll be very upset. <laughs> this will be on the news tomorrow. Richard um, Wolf says animals were ever hurt in this production. Um, but the idea, the idea is, you really have to break down an elephant-style project, and that's true of a book, right? So I do spend a lot of time thinking through what's the arc of this book, what are the characters of this book, how do the characters develop, how do I break down a chapter into these knife and fork sized elements a chapter I can break down into these chunks and these chunks I can break them down as well and each of those has to have a plan and a it's like a storyboard mm-hmm. for a movie yeah it's interesting to hear you talk about that because there a common thread that we've found as we've talked with you know sort of one creative person after another in radically different disciplines uh, is is this the inner critic, and h- how do you deal with the inner critic? Um, and it, it, it's the the eating the elephant sort of sounds like a, a version of that. I'm curious if if you if you also sort of 
both in book writing and also in, you know, your larger endeavors, do you, or I guess book writing may be the largest endeavor for all I know, but do you, do you have strategies around that, uh, around that sort of either responding to or silencing that inner voice that tells you I can't do this or I don't know enough or, uh, you know, I, I, I have it all the time. Uh, I think it kind of keeps you on your toes. Uh, you've got to stop it from being overwhelming. And, and um, my strategy on the book writing side is to say, I, I'm in a writing phase and I will write and then I will edit. And if I try and edit while I write, you never get out of, mm. you can never create the first draft. Mm-hmm. Because so I, I find there are very different functions, and I have to have the discipline to keep those two things separate. Um, otherwise, you're constantly improving. So I actually literally don't reread what I'm writing until I reach a certain point. I have to have the discipline to finish either a whole chapter or a whole book, and then go back and say, "Okay, now I'm going to rework it." Right. Uh, Does that so- make things go faster? That, yeah, that. it makes it go much faster, and it, uh, and it stops it stops you from having this sort of paralyzing effect of your own doubts. Yeah. Uh, uh, with the digital project, um, you know, there's there's not really any time to open up the old decisions um, until you reach the point of of launch. So I'm reopening all of our decisions now and saying. Was that the right thing to do? Why did we do it like that? What compromises do we make along the way to end up at this point? And now I'm looking at it and saying, oh, I know why we did that, and it's okay, but oh, we could reimagine that and do it much, much better. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's actually the phase we're in right now, where I'm looking at the whole thing from top to bottom and saying, okay, that was great, but we need to reimagine. We need to kick the tires on everything and uh, probably reimagine big, big chunks of this not because it was wrong, but because we made certain decisions along the way and either people are using it differently or the context has changed or mm-hmm. other decisions have impacted this in a different way. And I do think we'd never have got to launch if we tried to do that along the way. There was pressure for us to, for instance, focus group every single page and feature and function. I think that would have been a five-year project if we'd done that. Right. Yeah, I think it was, was it Hemingway that said, write drunk, edit sober? Um, and <laughs> and there's this, it's fascinating to me how like the the beautiful thing about the digital space is that you have that freedom to sort of, you know, make something, get it out there, but you can iterate on it. And it feels like there's less pressure. I would imagine that uh, releasing a book, for example, feels very different um, <laughs> because once it's out there, you don't get to change it. No, you don't. And also... Um you know, it's it's a fixed point of time that you don't control. So there's just no, you know, when we talk about, well, are we ready to launch? What was the schedule for launch? There's, there's, we're in control of that. Um, you know, healthcare.gov should have been in control of their timing too. But, you know, with a book, you're not. You're locked into a schedule and it's like a, a movie opening weekend. You're also defined by what else is opening that week, what else published that week, what is in the bookstores that month. Um, that's a bit more like a movie launch where, you know, depends on what else is, what are the other options for moviegoers? Websites, you know, you've got a million different options. So you know that it's a crowded marketplace and you're much more in control of timing. Mm -hmm. 
So your your food books. Lastly, before I'll, we'll we'll let you go, but I was just—is that just sort of a personal passion that you've also turned into? You know, your authoring talents. So uh, one of my best friends uh, when I was living in DC um, uh, was a Spanish chef. Is a Spanish chef, and um, you know he uh, a brilliantly creative guy, and I learned a lot, a lot from him about creativity and about actual management and how to manage creative people, um, which is a whole other discussion about, you know, how, how do you create, like you create creative and you create a menu, but then you've got a repeat execution day in, day out through mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of dishes and plates. I learned a lot by watching him and studying him and how he scaled things and everything else. But then it came to the book, um, you know, I had just done my first book and um, he, you know, chefs want to write books because everything they do is transient. Um, people eat their, their works of art and there's no record of it. So chefs find permanence and influence in doing books. Uh, I said to him, look, what we really need to do is get you to have a book and then the book will take us to a TV show and that's how you're really gonna become successful. And he said, great, but I don't know how to write a book and you do, so you're writing the book. And um, <laughs> he's, a big, he's a big Spanish guy and very, uh, you think I'm decisive, you should see him. And he's armed with sharp knives, by the way, so. <laughs> very persuasive character. Um, and we kind of had this sort of uh, barter. I would, we, you know, we would cook together on a Sunday. We'd go to a farmer's market together and cook for our families together. And I learned a lot about home cooking. I was already a home cook anyway. I, I find it a very uh, creative and a very different way from the sort of intellectual work of journalism and writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's physical, but it's still creative. You're still producing something. And I grew up in a culture, my mother's Moroccan, where food is hospitality and and that's really the sort of thing that binds a family and friends together. Um, so I learned a lot about cooking from him, and the trade-off was, well, we'll cook together, I'll show you how to cook, but you know, you're gonna write for me. Um, and the book we did, there wasn't really a big Spanish cookbook in America at the time. This guy really popularized Spanish cooking in America now, so all those tapas restaurants you probably hate, or the tapas style of eating, which you probably hate, that I love it. I love it. It <laughs> started with my friend, and, and uh, we the book was really successful. It was called Tapas, a Taste of Spain in America. Um, it led to both a, an American TV show on PBS and a Spanish TV show in Spain, uh, which was even more successful. Weird that we wrote a tapas cookbook in Spain that went straight to Spain itself and sold <laughs> vast quantities. Um, it was great fun. It led to I wrote the PBS series that he did called Made in Spain. My friend is called Jose Andres. Um, it led to a second book out of that. Um, chefs are creative people, but they are incapable of sitting down. They're very verbal. Um, the 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 discipline required of writing is not within their skill set. So they, you know, we actually wrote it. Uh, I, he would write emails, and I figured, well, if he wrote an email, he could write as well. But it turned out that that was a totally different part of his brain. <laughs> this is not uncommon for chefs in general, but uh, I ended up basically having to interview him and write it as I interviewed him. Often, I would write it uh, while he was asleep, which was a particular challenge. 
uh, it would be at the end of his day and he's not a nighttime person because he'd have come out of the restaurant and had a couple of glasses of wine and so all these recipes were in his head and I had to extract them all the stories were in his head it was a kind of extraction from his head verbally and then I'd write it and embellish it and then I'd learn his voice and and start writing in this weird Spanglish type of thing. <laughs> and, and eventually, you know, he'd, he'd fall asleep and I'd have to wake him up and say, what is the recipe for this omelette? <laughs> and he'd, he'd like wake up and he'd go to the stove and start cooking, <clears throat> thinking, oh, he's cooking the omelette, right? And reminding himself. But no, he'd be actually cooking some completely different dish. And then he'd start <laughs> rattling off the recipe for the omelette while he was cooking a, a totally different dish. Wow. Just, to be what he wanted to eat at that time at two o'clock in the morning having just woken up and, and so it was a very interesting creative writing um thing and uh, it, it was great to do it twice over and the tv show and i never want to do it again <laughs> <laughs> and you don't you don't find yourself accidentally s- slipping into that vernacular in spanglish while you're on air or anything my, my kids tell me that when I speak to him, I actually have a Spanish accent. In- <laughs> uh, so I, I, I have a whole different register just when I'm with him, but I, I managed to keep it off TV. <laughs> and now, now you've got me hungry for tapas. Yeah. Uh, Maybe. Yes. Well, th- thanks so much, Richard, for, for joining us, and we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule so it's been fun and thank you for all your work and this was fun thank you for having me yeah take care thank you Roger, you're here also.